As we move into what we know as chapter 14 of Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome, and I say it that way because, as I've said many times now, the original letter had no chapter divisions. In fact, the verses weren't even separated and numbered. So we need to start trying to read. It's a good practice, by the way, if you can sit down and read one of these books from beginning to end before you get up. Now, I can say that without any problem with the New Testament. You get into some of those in the Old Testament and, you know, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and your legs are not only ready to get up and move, but your brain is too. But to get the, the context of moving in that flow of thought without those artificial divisions. Um, as, as we move on, we need to recognize that the context of what Paul is saying now and has been saying since the beginning of chapter 12 the context is primarily the primacy of love starting with our text for this morning and continuing in fact to chapter 15 verse 13 Paul will be addressing our relationship to the weak how we're to be welcoming not despising, not judging, and, and not offending them. Now think back for a moment with me. Both of the previous chapters of Romans that we have looked at have placed emphasis on the primacy of love. In chapter 12, the focus was on loving our enemies. Loving our enemies. Chapter 12, verse 9. In terms of the marks of the true Christian, Paul wrote, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, but hold fast to what is good. And how do we do that? In verse 14, he said, You are to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 17 and following. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. <coughs> then, in chapter 13, his focus shifted to the primacy of loving our neighbors. Starting with verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, beginning with chapter 14, Paul supplies a rather lengthy example of what it means in practice to be walking in love. A verse that we'll get to probably next Sunday. It concerns the relationships that you and I have between two groups. And it's important to note that they are both groups that are within the Christian community in Rome. He'll speak of one group as the weak and the other group as the strong. And when we get to chapter 15, we will hear Paul say, we who are strong ought to bear with, bear with the failings of the weak. But the foundation has to be laid. 
And Paul is going to lay that in terms of the primacy of love. But there's one more point that I really need to make before we move into that. Another point in terms of introduction. It's important for us to be clear at the outset that Paul is referring to a weakness neither of the will nor a weakness of character. But he's actually talking about a weakness in, of, in assurance that once faith permits one to do certain things. So, if we're trying to picture a weaker brother or sister, we shouldn't, we mustn't, we really can't envision a vulnerable Christian easily overcome by temptation. That's not what Paul's talking about. Not vulnerable, but a Christian who is sensitive, but is full of indecision and certainly scruples. What the weak lack is not strength of self-control, but liberty of conscience in keeping with and living according to the Word of God. I remember... When we get there next week, Romans 14, 15 will emphasize the need to practice walking in love. In other words, a lifestyle of love. And that means a lot in terms of uh, what we need to be thinking about and reflecting on. Because one of the things that we need to do in doing this is come to some understanding of what it means to differentiate between essentials and non-essentials. It's one of the things that was stressed by the early leaders of the Christian churches and Church of Christ, what's come to be known as the Restoration Movement. They had a motto that went like this, and they didn't create it, it was there even before them. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, love. Now let me share an image with you this morning. Because I think it hits the nail on the head. Walking in love, being a follower, being a good disciple of Jesus, is not just asking myself, what would Jesus do? And I wish I had that set of keys wherever they are that had that bar on it because I, I liked it. It was a little silver bar about that long that had the letters WWJD. And, and that's good to think about that in situations. What would Jesus do in a given situation? It's a good start. But actually, living the Christian life is about what we saw as we concluded last Sunday. It's about how can I put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So the image, as you can see, from far back it might not be as easily ascertained. Do you see the frame? You see the hand on the mouth, just like the hand on the mouth? The young man is looking into a mirror and what does the young man see? Jesus. Because he has 
put on Christ. And so the question becomes, how can I clothe myself with Christ? Prior to coming to the United States, father and son, Thomas and Alexander Campbell, I don't know if you're familiar with those names. They're two of the five names mentioned most frequently. Thomas and Alexander Campbell, uh, James Kelly, Barton W. Stone. uh, You know, those names keep coming up. Well, the Campbells were part of, listen to this, this is how they named their church. It was the Old Light Anti-Burger Seceder Presbyterian Church. And as members of that denomination, they weren't allowed to have fellowship with those who were New Light Anti-Burger Seceder Presbyterians. Far less non-seceders or those who happened to follow the teachings of the man named Burger. Division after division after division. And those of you who have been a part and around First Christian Church Brook are well aware of all of the discord and divisions that can take place. You see, true Christian and therefore a true church will not be divided over issues such as the color or design of the carpet. Whether the congregation is using choruses, hymns, or a combination of both, the the traditional versus praise hymn issue that's become a divisive wedge in a lot of churches. We shouldn't even have divided over whether or not the instrument was going to be used as a part of worship. Because none of those are essentials. So where do we start? Where do we go? I think a good place to start is with the Apostle Paul who wrote to the Christians at Corinth, For I delivered to you as of first importance, in other words, I'm giving you some meat here, what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and the twelve. A good place to start in terms of essentials as to what we should believe. With that as a backdrop, let's read God's Word. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. 
The one who observes today observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the other one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, or at least shouldn't. And none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word. In the text that we just read, the call that we are given is to receive one another. And Paul starts off right away in the first verse by laying down the fundamental principle of acceptance. Especially acceptance of the weak. Which undergirds this whole discussion. It's positive. Welcome him. In other words, accept him. But yet it's also qualified. We're to receive others without passing judgment on disputable, non-essential matters. Paul says we are not to quarrel over opinions. And so Paul reminds us in the, these first 12 verses of the chapter just why we are to be receiving one another. It's because, first of all, God welcomes so we're not to despise or condemn that one that God welcomes. And it may be helpful in order to grasp the truth of Paul's argument to highlight the theological truths on which he gives these exhortations. And the first is, welcome him because God has welcomed him. You see, though he could have chosen many other topics... Paul chooses a dietary question as the first illustration of how the weak and the strong, the fearful and the free, should behave toward one another. One man's faith allows him to eat everything. His freedom in Christ has liberated him from unnecessary scruples about food. But another person whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. And it's probably not because he's a vegetarian. It's not because of health is probably because the only foolproof way that that person as a Christian who is sincere the only way they can ensure that they don't eat non-kosher meat or meat that's been offered to idols is not to eat any meat at all. So how are these Christians to regard each other? Paul says, the person who eats everything, which is a strong, you're not to look down on those who don't. And the man who doesn't eat everything, the weak, shouldn't be condemning the one who does. Paul doesn't really tell us 
why the strong are forbidden to despise the weak and the weak to condemn the strong other than reminding us in verse 3 that God has accepted him. I assume Paul thinks that's sufficient. If God accepts him, even though they're not eating meat or they are eating meat, I guess I should too. You know, how dare we reject a person whom God has accepted? And, and I could give you story after story after story. Scott Barchi, who used to teach at Emmanuel School of Religion, his son went to college. He went to the church that Scott recommended that he go to that was near the college. He went in. As he was leaving, one of the men said, maybe next week you can get cleaned up and get some shoes on before you come. And if you need some money, I'll give you some money so you can get your hair cut. Needless to say, he didn't go back. Also, he called his father, Scott, and he said, Dad, don't ever recommend a church like that to me again, please. I can tell you a story about a congregation where a couple who were from the school that I was teaching at, the College of the Scriptures, black students, went into one of the Christian churches, Churches of Christ, went in and sat down, and the people sitting next to them got up and moved. And I can give you heartbreak after heartbreak of how horribly we as Christians can behave and talk and think. You see, and the best way to determine what our attitude to other people should be like is to be able to determine what God's attitude is to them. Uh, last night I was studying again the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, for those people that was an oxymoron. Good and Samaritan didn't go together for the Jews. The Samaritans were hated. They were half-breeds. And that's the story that Jesus chose to tell to this young scribe, ruler, lawyer as to who our neighbor is. It's the one who is in your eyes despicable, dirty, unclean spiritually and shouldn't even be there. And he turns out to be a good one. The second foundational belief is that God sustains in verse 4, Paul continues his argument by pointing out that it's inappropriate to reject somebody whom God has welcomed. So why do we think it's not inappropriate to interfere in the relationship between them and their master? You see, in ordinary life, that kind of behavior would be regarded as something that was deeply resented. Don't come in here and tell my servant how they should be doing when I'm right here. No, we have no business to come between a fellow Christian and Christ. That would be usurping Christ's position in that person's life. Paul says to his own master he stands or falls. He is not responsible to us, nor are we responsible for him. And by the way, Paul says he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand, verse 4. 
In other words, and literally, the text says that the servant shall be made to stand. It's in the imperative. In spite of our sharp criticisms of one another, because God has the power. And I love it. The Greek word there is the word that dynamite's built off of. God has dynamite, man. He can, he can do that. Uh, you realize, I hope, that God stay, sustains His children disciplining at times and giving him, giving them His approval, whether that person has our approval or not. Then, starting with verse 5, Paul develops his second illustration of the relationships between the weak and the strong. And now, the issue has to do with accepting Jesus as Lord. The example concerns the observance or non-observance of special days. Some people, and, and that's great for them, get a big kick out of birthdays. Y'all had a great time at your 50th birthday. That, that's a biggie for some people. I'm not a birthday person. Some people get a kick out of New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Am I a New Year's Eve person? No, you're a party pooper. No, I'm a <laughs> No, I'm a party pooper. <laughs> Presumably he's talking about the Jewish festivals and feasts or fasts. Whether it be weekly, monthly, or annually, he begins by describing the alternates actually without any comment. One man considers, another man considers. The latter does not distinguish between the days any more than he does between foods. But to whichever group his readers might belong, Paul's first concern for them was each one should be fully convinced in his own, in his own mind. In other words, don't be wishy-washy. And that's scriptural, by the way. Paul will return to that in verse 23 when he'll, he'll say, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Sin's not a list. Sin is a relationship failure. That's why all of the lists of sin in the Bible have different things. They don't agree. Sometimes we want to have a list of sin and you better agree with our list. I received some of that same hassle that Scotsons did. Some of you have seen pictures around our house. I had my hair down on my shoulders. At times the beard was a little longer. At times I had a perm. Can you imagine that? <laughs> when it was cold and I hadn't brushed it out, they said I looked like uh, Welcome Back Cotter. <laughs> but when I got off duty and I brushed it out, even the shoplifters at Kroger didn't realize I was a police officer. <laughs> But we've got to be convinced. We've got to be convinced. Paul's not encouraging mindless behavior. Nor is he 
friendly to those who have unexamined traditions. That's why I said more than once already today. The words, that's how we've always done it. We've never done it like that before. Those are meaningless to me. Absolutely meaningless. In fact, it reveals to me that maybe we haven't even been doing the thinking we should. But assuming that each person, weak and strong, has reflected on the issue and has reached a firm decision, that person then should deem that his practice is to include that as a part of his Christian discipleship. And here, the question comes up, have we allowed Jesus to be the Lord or some arbitrary rule that some human has made? One of the issues that came up about a decade ago or so was whether or not it's right to worship on Saturday evening instead of Sunday morning. Do you know what the primary argument was? The Bible says on the first day of the week. But do you know that the people who said on the first day of the week we're more than likely meeting on Saturday evening in our time reckoning because after darkness, after supper, on Saturday began the first day of the week. And that's why Eutychus got tired and fell asleep and fell out of the window when Paul was preaching too long past midnight. They were meeting on what we know of as Saturday night. And yet, boy, we can take a firm stand. The Bible says... Yeah, let's, let's learn what the Bible really says. The same is true of the person who regards every day alike, although Paul doesn't mention him in verse 6. Instead, he reverts to the question of meat, and in doing so, he adds an important element twice. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to the Lord. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, giving thanks to God. You see, whether the person is an eater or an abstainer, the two same principles apply. If we're able to receive something from God with thanksgiving as his gift to us, then we ought to be able to offer it back as our service to him. So finally, in verses 10 to 12, Paul's emphasis is on living with the knowledge that Jesus is judge. Not me, not you. After writing about the strong and the weak, the observers and the abstainers, the living and the dead, all in rather general and impersonal terms, Paul suddenly poses his questions, two of them, in which he sets the one over against the other, you and your brother. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? Despising and judging fellow Christians, same verbs that are used in verse 3 by the way, that smile of disdainful contempt, that frown of condemnatory judgment, that little look in the eyes that some have that you know when they are non-verbally disagreeing, 
All of that, Paul shows to be totally uncharacteristic of what it means to be a true Christian. And I'm just as guilty. My, wife, my daughter will say to me every once in a while, Dad, you have that look. And it's probably one of those looks. <laughs> Why? Not only because he, God has accepted them, not only because Christ has died and risen to be our common Lord, but also because they and we are related to one another in the strongest possible way by family ties. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. I can sit down and worship in a congregation where they don't have instruments and it doesn't bother me. In fact, I've been in a few where some of their voices on the sign side sounded like instruments. What's the name of that, that group? Pentatonic. Pentatonic. Yeah. Man, I love to hear that thing. They don't have instruments. They do. It's called their vocal cords and their fingers clicking. And I can sit down and worship with a congregation and other believers who don't have the same understanding of the gifts of the Spirit as I do. I worship many times in a, in a, uh, a uh, Church of God, Assembly of God church. And I told them, hey, as long as you don't think I'm any less of a Christian because I'm not speaking in tongues, do your thing. I'm not going to judge We're brothers and sisters. And whether we are thinking of the weak with all their tedious doubts and fears, I get tired of the tyranny of the weak brother who wants to tell me what is causing them to stumble. Really? I had a guy one day tell me, you know, you shouldn't have long hair. And I said, why? He said, well, first of all, you're causing me to stumble. I said, oh, you're tempted to have long hair? Well, no. Then I'm not causing you to stumble. You just don't like the fact that I have long hair. We need to get track of what is essential and what's not and we need to remember that our attitude to them becomes at once less critical and impatient and more generous and tender when we realize that Christ is our Lord. And you and I are also going to have to stand on the judgment seat. I hear people say all the time, we're not to judge because we're going to be judged. That is, again, context, unless you're willing to be judged by the same standard. That's what he's talking about. When Jesus said, do not judge or you too will be judged, he was forbidding, he wasn't forbidding discernment or telling us to suspend our critical faculties. If he did that, he wouldn't have been able to say that in the very next thing he said, watch out for false prophets. How are you going to Decide somebody's a false prophet if you're not making a mental judgment, a discernment. 
No, what he was talking about was not trying to be everybody's censor. Well, you shouldn't say that. Well, maybe I shouldn't. But you shouldn't tell me I shouldn't. Unless, unless, you can point to verse, book, chapter, and verse. You see, confront me with God's Word. I'll be happy for you to confront me with God's Word. But don't condemn me. And if I'm doing something wrong, certainly don't condone what I'm doing. You're just helping me go to hell and go there faster if you don't speak up when, when you know I'm doing something that is against this book. Yeah, i got to get to my challenge. Four theological truths that undergird Paul's admonition to the weak. To not despise and condemn. They concern God, Christ, them, and ourselves. God has accepted and welcomes all who seek Him confessionally and repentfully. So, so should we. They are our brothers and sisters. We need to remember they're of the same family. All of us are going to stand before God's judgment seat. Any one of these truths should be enough to sanctify our relationships. But we not desperately need to hear what Paul developed as his second truth in verse 9. That Christ died and rose to be the Lord. Both theirs and ours. And what is more pressing than dabbling over non-essentials? than the fact that it is essential for us to understand the principle of lordship, making Jesus Christ the Lord of our lives 24-7, 365. And, by the way, letting Him be the Lord in the lives of other Christians, a position that we should always refuse to place ourselves in, confront but don't condemn and don't condone. Help. Speak the truth. How? In love. I love my dad. And I believe my dad loved me. I believe my dad loved almost everybody that he ever met. But if you don't believe me, ask my wife after the service. My dad had a look that was anything but Christian. And that's all he's going to say. But he had a look that would almost burn holes through you when he didn't agree with you. That is not speaking the truth in love. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today striving hard to be the Christians you've called us to be. Fully aware that we make many mistakes. But thank you, Father. Thank you for being a God who loves us 
and who takes us just as we are. But thank you also, Father, for your word that tells us you don't want to stay, us to stay that way. Now help us as we sing our hymn of commitment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand, we're going